0: I said it before and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it.
1: Never fear change. Life is too short for fear. Chase what is desired.
0: I can do this all day. Would you mind identifying what you are? We're the best friend squad. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Welcome to the rodeo. Ladies and gentlemen, please sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. This is the way. I have spoken. Welcome to Totally Pretentious, a podcast about great movies. I'm David. And I'm Sean. And today we're looking at the 1977 Japanese film House, directed by Nobuhiko Obayashi.
1: A film that David picked. <laughs> because my pick was Fitzcarraldo from last week. So, thank you David that we, we watched this film. You're welcome. You, you have a tendency now of picking the strangest damn things ever.
0: Well, it's, uh, you know, it's not the most, I could I, I certainly have gone more obscure. Our house isn't uh, particularly so. And in fact, uh, in 1977, it was a big box office hit in Japan.
1: I know. I, I, I was reading about this exact thing about how popular it was in its time. V- quite popular, despite being a very unusual film. And even uh, Obayashi in some of the uh, DVD materials on the Criterion Collection talks a little bit about the sort of ways in which he was bucking uh, Japanese film trends at the time, which I admit I don't know enough about, but maybe you will have some answers to that. But uh, it was interesting to hear him talk about that uh, and that a lot of young people apparently really liked his movie, partly because apparently he used to show his short films at the universities, and so they just followed him to the big theater.
0: Yeah, it does. I mean, I, and I don't, I'm not going to pretend that I'm uh, uh, any more of an expert uh, on the, uh, the, the, the Japanese film scene at that particular period than you are, but it does seem to have been bucking a trend at that time, even as it was winking at some of those trends. So that it was originally a lower build offering on a double bill with a uh, rom com, and the star of the the male lead of the rom com, who was a uh, very very popular at that time shows up briefly in house in the flashbacks to the aunt's tragic love story he's the he's her uh boyfriend who goes off to war and never comes back
1: i did not know that well that that adds some interesting dynamics so maybe there's a the, the silliness as it were of this film uh is is partly what maybe bucks the trend because there's a there's a way in which it's most of the film is not dealing with those very serious elements, but occasionally it it points to them in almost not quite farcical ways, but maybe a little bit farcical.
0: I think you know, there certainly is a lot of overt slapstick in here. Yeah. Certainly it is another film that is an example of the very, very close relationship between comedy and horror. As you've probably seen the same places I have that there were some comparisons made uh, between – House and the later Evil Dead films of Sam Raimi and uh, Peter Jackson's early work. And you know, you can see uh some of those those connections, but it's still very much it, it House is, is it's quite different from Evil Dead too. There for example, there is a How shall I say this there's, there's there's there is a heartfelt and and darker uh aspect to it there. But at the same time, there's a childlike quality that i that i like to think comes from uh, obayashi's collaboration with his 11-year-old daughter on the story and it's cuz it's got that kind of wild anything can happen uh, approach of childhood imagination and so the result the way i watched it, it felt like i was looking at a cross between Suspiria and Yellow Submarine
1: <laughs> well i can tell you that based on my, what i've i've read about obayashi you know talking about it you know many decades later it does appear that uh, his his collaboration with his 11-year-old daughter was Pretty significant. Uh, she even, as I recall, appears briefly in the in the film. But he he does right because he takes he takes cues from his daughter. I mean, the the original ideas for this film was he was told he was supposed to make a film kind of like Jaws because at this time Jaws is enormously successful in the U.S. So they wanted something like Jaws. This is nothing like Jaws. Uh, but he didn't think that that the sort of realistic terrors were all that scary. The most terrifying things were the things that sort of bucked your expectations the stuff that's that children found fascinating and terrifying and so he went to his his uh his daughter for a lot of these and some of the examples are i mean the very premise of the movie essentially comes from his daughter which is the idea of a house that eats it eats well in this case girls I presumably it eats other people but it must have a preference for it likes uh, likes uh young women especially but it also, in his decision about the special effects, apparently he helped oversee the special effects and wanted them to deliberately look unrealistic because he wanted them to have a childlike quality mm-hmm. to them, and a lot of them really do. You know, I mean, I think uh, we we haven't quite explained what the movie's about, but there's a moment in the film where one of the um, uh, the one named Melody uh, is essentially eaten by a piano, yes. and it it starts a little bit kind of. It's comical, but in a, in a, almost a slapstick way where like her parts of her fingers are disappearing and then she's getting eaten and then it becomes a little scary as the piano actually starts to eat her and then it becomes just completely ridiculous where like her body parts are floating in the air and like she's being eaten and like her legs are flopping out of it and there's like weird music going on and all of these kinds of things. It's interesting to watch. And I think part of this is certainly from Obayashi's relationship with his daughter, but I also think part of this is that Obayashi basically cut his teeth on making commercials, which apparently you weren't supposed to do in Japanese cinema as a, as a director. Like that was like the low form of art because they didn't have, as Obayashi says, doesn't have, they don't have messages, right? That's just basically empty rhetoric. And he apparently had a lot of fun with making commercials uh, and didn't get taken seriously by the sort of Japanese film establishment. And then he made this film, and I still don't think he quite got taken seriously by the Japanese film establishment, but they also couldn't ignore him because he made money.
0: Yeah, because it wasn't particularly well-received critically in Japan at that time, but it certainly was well-received by younger audiences in particular. And I think the example you give of the, the the piano scene is, I think, really a case in point as to it the way it, it, ter- it shifts in tone on a dime. But I suppose you're right. Maybe we should set up the premise uh, first. So for those of you who have not seen the film, we have seven high school girls who go to the, the rural mansion of the aunt of one of them, whose name is Gorgeous. And the aunt initially appears in with white hair uh in in a wheelchair but gradually becomes invigorated over the course of the uh, events as the house gradually starts devouring the the teenage girls one after uh, the other uh absorbing them and 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 rejuvenating her which on the surface could sound almost like uh, variations of plots like uh, burnt offerings and things like that but in its execution is so delirious uh, and the example you gave, Sean, of the the way that the piano scene shifts from humor to horror, or uh, are both there simultaneously, uh, when melody when the, the piano first bites off her fingers, the image is actually rather gruesome. With the the her she's holding up her stumps before her, but she's laughing. And then, then it becomes, then she's not laughing as the, the, the piano starts to devour her. But in the final stages where we reach the, the stage where, as you described, we're just seeing her very disembodied parts floating around. She's laugh, her, her severed head is laughing again. And she, at one point she says, Oh, that's very naughty, uh, <laughs> about what the, uh, the, the piano is doing.
1: Yeah, it is a very, str- I mean, the premise of this film is very, very simple. But it's the other things about it that aren't simple. Because, right, because the the very idea is, like, it's a house that eats people. Like, that setup's pretty easy to follow, right? We have all kinds of variations on the, like, people go to a house and the house is haunted thing, and then it tries to kill the people that are in the house. And that whole plot line's easy enough to follow. It's all of the other stuff that I think is where the most interesting components about this are. I, I mean, in 1977, Obey uh, says that apparently the idea of having the house be the thing that devours was considered unusual. I think today we probably don't think that, but we have, you know, 40-something years of foresight now of having seen lots of films in which houses try to kill people. Some of them maybe even try to eat them. But I think what's interesting is, like, if we look at what the cast is, um, so, like, you, you mentioned there's the the seven uh, teenage girls, and um, they all have very somewhat comical names because they're essentially almost like nicknames, that are based on who each of the characters are. Obeyashi has also said that he took the number seven because in, in his mind, uh, the number seven is really important in Japanese culture. Most obviously, I think this could be a reference to a, a film I think you can imagine, David. What what Japanese film featuring seven might you be thinking of?
0: Well, The Seven Samurai. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> and uh, in his... Um his essay uh, in the uh, on the, the Criterion uh, edition of the um, film uh, Chuck Stevens also compares to Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, and it does have that kind of fairy tale quality too.
1: Absolutely.
0: And now there, we certainly, I mean, there had been a couple of devouring house films prior to this. Uh, in fact, the year before we have Burnt Offerings. And going back to nineteen sixty three we have the the haunting the first film version of Shirley jackson's ha- the Haunting of Hill House. It may not actually eat people, but it does consume our uh uh at least one of the uh the characters so we have yeah th- these things exist, but this sort of over the top body count uh devouring by a house, yeah, I don't think there'd been much like that and I think even today the there's there's not a lot that looks and feels like that this film his commercial background is there and adds to the glorious perversity of the movie because it sometimes feels like you're watching some kind of nightmare commercial uh for you know come out to this country house and be killed the ways in which he's constantly (laughs) fragmenting the frame of pictures within pictures or even uh the the otherwise innocuous scene where Gorgeous is introduced to her new stepmother to be. And this takes place on a balcony, but the camera is inside the apartment and the balcony's glass doors are closed and they, are, the glass is in a grid form. And so the, the images of the characters are being broken up. By the different squares of glass to sometimes distorting effect. And the stepmother, who seems to move perpetually in slow motion in some privately delivered wind that's always blowing her scars about, she looks like she's perpetually inhabiting some kind of shampoo or makeup commercial.
1: Yeah, that's something I was thinking about when I realized his commercial background. There are a lot of sequences in this that feel like they're setups for commercials that obviously aren't because there's no product actually being sold to us. But they the 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 tone and even often the music that's being played, right? like it'll be delightfully cheery music playing or cheesy music or sort of romantic music that sets this up as as if we were watching a commercial for like a travel agency or shampoo or something else. And even like I think you were kind of saying earlier, there's these mythical elements to this is sort of, I I think, becomes embodied by the characters. Because there are these seven girls and all of their nicknames are sort of very convenient descriptions for the characteristic about them we're supposed to recognize. So Gorgeous is is called Gorgeous because she's supposed to be the most beautiful. Um, There's Kung Fu, who's always doing kicks and punches and is like really, you know, aggressive. There's Prof, who's supposed to be the super smart one. There is Fantasy who I think just mostly is scared most of the time, but uh, that's what I took from it.
0: <laughs> well, but she does in, engage in fantasies. It's like she's kind of dreamy. She's the one who has the crush on the teacher.
1: Oh, that's right. Yeah, the the kind of gross looking teacher. Yes.
0: Who of course, who gets turned into <laughs> bananas.
1: Yeah, he gets turned into bananas at, at one point. That that's something you all have to look to look forward to. Um, and then you have Mac, who is known because she loves food i i did find it weird that the film at a couple points tries to make us think that she's fat but she's really not but yeah she loves to eat food and she's always hungry there's melody who obviously is the one that plays music she's the one that plays on the piano uh so you have all of these like characters that are sort of archetypes already kind of set up that you might expect in something like uh you know snow white and the seven dwarves because snow White and the seven dwarves all their names are like the thing that they identify by right there's you know, Grumpy and I forget all the other names. You get the idea though, right? Grumpy's always Grumpy. So, and so on and so forth, right? Uh, So there's like these mythical qualities of it that I think are combined with those commercial sensations that it's giving us that are, I think what you say, maybe it's sometimes grotesque, but not grotesque in the way that I would expect from a horror film, but grotesque in almost like a commercialist way, which is, I don't know if that's making sense, but that's kind of how I feel about the grotesquerie. It doesn't feel at times like a proper horror movie, except when there's actual gore. The grotesquerie is in all of the other like mythical qualities and archetypes, and the weird sequences that feel odd yeah. in a film that is supposed to have a fairly straightforward plot. I don't know. I I think that makes sense, but I'll I'll let you kind of jump in here.
0: Well, yeah, because the I mean the plot is straightforward, and I think that's in some ways its purpose in that it's it's really just enough of a plot to get us go- to get us there and then to permit the, the phantasmagoria of images to unfold. So the, the plot itself almost, I, I don't want to say that it gets itself cut up into pieces, because it does proceed kind of linearly, but it is, well, like Suspiria, which came out the same year, uh, and also has that that fairy tale quality, and in fact, itself was uh, very Dario Argento was very heavily influenced by Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs for the the look of the film, and and so they they both both House and Suspiria have this once upon a time quality. You can summarize the plots in a couple of sentences for both of them, but that the, the plots are in some ways the least important parts of of the films. And so to come back to what you were saying about the commercials and how we keep, yeah, seem to be every so often it feels like we're about to enter the, we're watching a commercial for something that doesn't exist or something that never actually starts to advertise itself. And yet the traces of that mode remain. One of the the things that struck me in that regard was that the, the travel billboard that they go past in the train station, which then seems to follow them to the aunt's house. And their teacher drives by at one point as well. But now it's no longer a billboard in a train station advertising the mountains. It's a billboard advertising the mountains in the middle of the mountains. Uh, <laughs> it's just there by the side of the road, <laughs> yeah. making no sense at all.
1: And that, see, that billboard, I mean, there, there's like a moment when they take a picture in front of it. And it's, it's really surreal because all the girls kind of are taking a picture there, as I recall. Or did I just m- make that up?
0: No, no, I think that's right. Uh, uh, at least it it feels right what you Yeah, because
1: they they get off the bus and then I think they they get together to have a picture taken in front of that billboard of the mountains. This film is is surreal. Like it's a there are just things that appear in it that are just quite odd to say the least.
0: Well. It it makes a virtue out of its artificiality, right? So if they're taking a picture in front of the billboard when they're surrounded by actual scenery, but then some of the supposedly actual scenery that they are moving uh, through is very clearly a matte painting, such as when we get the first look at the house from a distance, which is pointed out to them by the watermelon salesman, who looks kind of like a watermelon. (laughs) And... Who also was the Who also was the composer of the score?
1: Right. He he demanded to be in the movie, but he didn't he didn't want to have a major role. I think he just wanted to be a weirdo, <laughs> <laughs>
0: which he which he does very effectively. Yeah. Uh, so the the we have these these images that exceed any kind of sense, and like Suspiria, like in fact quite a bit of the. The horror films that were coming out of Europe at this time, it has this quality of an exuberance of the image and of its possibilities, and much much less interested in than American films from the same period, in character development and and plot and and a grounding in a recognizable reality. Rather, it's taking recognizable reality and rendering it unrecognizable even before we get to the haunted house.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I I don't really have anything to add to that. <laughs> That's just a really good point.
0: So I'm curious, like, your first uh, viewing of it, I mean, it, d- does it feel like a film that as, as, is as disorienting now, over 40 years later? Does it still feel like it's being beamed in from some other planet?
1: So, yes and no. I've watched many, many things in Japanese cinema, more modern stuff, especially anime. And there is like a, a really strange quality to not all but many works of Japanese cinema, whether animated or otherwise, that I think is sometimes for from my perspective as a Western person from the US, I want to say almost feels off in a way that I don't quite understand because I'm not from the culture. Uh, and so I'm coming from as an outsider. I don't want to say alien because I think that's not quite a fair uh, assessment. And so when I watched this, like, yes, on the one hand I could see like, there's all of these things that feel very, they just feel so surreal and strange and it's hard to sort of grasp them. But then other stuff I was just going like, oh, well that's just, you know, I, I've seen a movie that does weird shit like this too. So it's co- sort of, didn't surprise me in the way that i think the part that surprised me was just mostly that every time you pick a horror movie you pick like the weirdest damn horror movies imaginable (laughs) uh and and so that the part is surprises me because i'm always thinking like oh david's gonna pick something that's super normal and then you pick something where it's like oh god this is like what it's like to live inside david's head
0: <laughs> well, and you know, to put my cards on the table, I have to say that what partly what motivated me to choose this particular film was it one that had remained a significant gap for me. So this was a way for me to finally see it myself having read about it for for some time. So uh, this was a first viewing for both of us.
1: How have you never seen this movie?
0: Well, it was one that uh I mean, I guess I first started I first uh, read about it, oof, well, yeah, probably about 20 years ago, but uh, it wasn't one that was readily available for, um, a lot of, uh, well, so certainly through the 90s. There, there's so much of international cinema that is now at our fingertips, but certainly when I was doing, uh, my graduate work on horror in, in the 90s, even, uh, most, uh, European horror films, you were having to make do with, uh, public domain issues of, Varying quality, uh, and, uh, uh, that we, that we just didn't have legitimate releases of, uh, particularly uncut of, of so many things. And this was at a period when, uh, certainly, for instance, um, Hong Kong cinema was only just, re- well, certainly action cinema was really finally making its, its, uh, presence felt, uh, in, uh, in North America. But again, in, yeah, you, know, you had to go looking for it and anime, you know, unless you were talking about Akira, uh there wasn't a lot that was readily accessible, never mind either dubbed or subtitled in English so you could understand what the heck it was you were watching. So, uh, and then after, uh, after that, it's just, you know, there's so much out there that there's things you just don't get around to. And, uh, so this was my way of finally making myself get around to house. Uh, so I'm, I'm very glad that I did. And I, coming back to what you were just saying earlier about some of the stuff that uh, since then, it, it's occurred to me, uh, as you were talking that, uh, even though the tone is so different, It'd be interesting to make comparisons between this and the work of uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa, who gave us movies like Cure and Pulse, that are perhaps more nightmarish, or certainly darker than House, and less wacky in their presentation, but that can spiral off into very disorienting presentations of the world of the film in ways that I don't think are entirely disconnected from what we're seeing in house.
1: In a weird sort of way I think you're probably right there. Again, I don't have anything to add. You just like say things and then I'm just like, yeah, that that seems right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> just listen to me pontificate for a while. Yeah, you be quiet over there. Sit David. yourself down in the corner. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I I I don't know. There's just a, this film is so different from anything we've watched so far. Cause we've, we've covered stuff that I would say is, you know, from a, a US perspective, fairly conventional films. Um, and I don't mean that in a negative way. It just means that they're no. not necessarily experimental. They're not necessarily pushing boundaries, right? They're sort of dealing with their subject matter in a very traditionalist way insofar as that is a medium possibility. Whereas this film, you know, it is, it's one that sort of bucks every expectation. That you have for what you're getting i mean even my expectation of what a horror comedy film should be like like my my default is to think something like evil dead 2 or army of darkness Mm -hmm. or uh maybe cabin in the woods you know these kinds of i mean be fair these came after this film so there's a bit of distance but those films where there's there's still like a, a like a conventional aspect to them, even if some of the the special effects might not be conventional, because um, they might be fairly cleverly done. But there is a sense of like, I watch you know Army of Darkness, and part of the comedy comes from watching the the lead actor Bruce Campbell, you know, with it, the dialogue that he gets. And so there's a there's a very clear sense like I'm getting horror elements, but it's primarily a comedy. Yeah. In the way that this film, uh, that separation's not it it's not clear a lot of the times. There are moments that are truly, that in a different film would be, I think, haunting and disturbing in a way. Um, So like there's this, the sequence when um, I forget who's alive at at the very end when the house has been covered in water and she hugs
0: uh, Gorgeous. Uh, Well, I think it's the last two who are alive as as everything starts to flood are Prof and Fantasy.
1: I think Fantasy's then the one that hugs she's the last she's I the think. last one okay then yeah i mean it, so this whole film like up to this point this is almost the very very end but it's like the last of the teen girls right and the fu- house is flooded uh, they're trying to float on the floorboards basically trying not to get sucked into the water they think profit one point thinks that they figured out like how do we stop this you have to like destroy the cat picture and they try that and it doesn't really work because uh that this is a house that's going to eat you. You, you kind of have to destroy more than that. Um, and so, Prof is dead, and all of them are dead. And then she manages to like get her little floorboard over to the stairs, you know, while mm-hmm. the floor of the bottom floor is all covered. And then she sees Gorgeous, who has at this point been essentially consumed and has become a ghost of sorts, uh, who's wearing like a wedding gown and like all of these things that are kind of going on. And fantasy is like hugs up against her, almost as if she's like relinquishing herself to her fate, in a way. Uh, and this is when Gorgeous is actually bare breasted, because that's the thing that does occasionally happen in this movie. So there's that. And I think that that if not for the rest of that film, that sequence would be one of the most haunting moments in any horror film. But it there's a there's like always the expectation at that point of like, well, where's the silly thing gonna come? Like maybe Maybe she turns into like a giant pot plant and like just like eats her or something like just something silly or something strange or unusual. But that scene is sort of in a way bucks the expectations of the rest of the damn film because the whole film has been things that don't seem to connect. And yet this one seems to make a lot of sense and is very conventional in its construction. And this is what this film does is like at all times like you think you know what you're going to get and then you don't get it. You get something you didn't anticipate.
0: Yeah, and there's a couple. I agree. There's a couple of things there which you said that I'd like to pick up on. One is, I think we should mention one of the cinematic traditions that does come through here is with the ant who and the connection with the the demonic cat. Right there, there is that tradition, and I think the uh, the, the film that that best embodies this is kuroneko uh with the the idea of sort of ghosts returning as demonic cats for for vengeance and so the we, we have that aspect uh in in the ant who yes who at this point has consumed gorgeous and appears as her but then then it reappears as herself i think in the, the, the those final moments there and you're absolutely right that the you know we we don't know it when we're going to get comedy and when we're going to get horror and sometimes you know, how do we feel ab- about them and yeah with with evil dead 2 for instance the there's blood all over the place but it's hilarious right and but if you look look at the um the arc of the evil dead films at least uh, sam raimi's ones and you see the movement towards full on comedy and less unpleasant gore so by the time you get to Army of Darkness it's much more I mean the the the, the fact that the the one of the one of the big governing presences of that film is the spirit of Ray Harryhausen right uh with all of the uh stop motion animated skeletons and yeah. the, the the epic the epic fantasy battles and things like that and it's much less glory than than the other two Evil Dead 2 is really the embodiment of splatstick uh, in a way that wouldn't really be surpassed until uh, Peter Jackson's Dead Alive. But the first Evil Dead is not really funny. It It's playing things mostly straight, but its gore effects are also so incredibly over-the-top and also the budget was so much smaller that there's a kind of Play-Doh quality sometimes to them. But they're also sometimes genuinely nasty, such as when there's a scene with a, a young woman gets a pencil thrust into her, uh, her ankle. Uh, and it looks very convincing. So the first Evil Dead, I think, has some of that disorienting quality that House does where you're not entirely sure how you feel you know am i supposed to be laughing am i supposed to be disturbed uh, and sometimes th- there's that uh, one of the early moments of su- the supernatural in house is when mac i believe is the first victim isn't she and Mel- uh, fantasy goes to look for it and pulls up her decapitated head from the well
1: where the watermelon was originally
0: yes and she instead of a watermelon she gets a head and the head flies up and then and then bites her on the ass and it's a kind of juvenile humor moment right of ha oh, 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 the head's biting you on the ass right and it's kind of played that way but at the same time you're you're watching a decapitated head doing this right and so it's like i don't know if i'm finding this funny or not it's 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 putting me in a place or i'm not quite sure how i'm supposed to feel and so i think this is uh, to your point of uh, the 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 a lot of the american comedy horror films you kind of know how you feel or how you're supposed to feel yeah uh and and you're right that they may they may have the trappings of horror but their the overall effect is one of unmitigated hilarity but i, I also find it ironic that uh, as you said the uh, you know that this this is very unconventional that way if we talk about uh, the films that have been you know, designed for mainstream appeal and so forth. And yet here we have a film that was, so was okay, we need something like Jaws. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like we need something with the broadest uh, commercial appeal possible. Make this and uh, – or, or go ahead and make the movie that you want to make. And And in a weird way, he did. So, it's simultaneously very much against the grain – Yet, it was a commercial success.
1: It was, it was indeed. It, it, it w- is worth noting, though, that this is done with the uh, Toho, the film company Toho. And uh, while they greenlit his script, they did not have anyone to direct this when it was first up. So it took two years before they finally actually made it. Because Obeyashi actually finally just said, I'll freaking do it. And got Toho to agree to it. Uh, I can't remember exactly what he did. Oh, he promoted. He spent like two years promoting his own film. So there was... This is like the opposite of how it's usually done, which is you make the film and then there's lots of cool promo stuff for it, like albums and art and all that stuff. He did the opposite. He started with all of the like albums of art, like they sold the music from the film um, and all these things that they did before it, which basically convinced Toho to say... Well, shoot, we have to say yes now because like, people are expecting this film to be made, uh, and they want to see this film, and so we can't say no. And so in a weird way, it's very commercial in the way that it eventually came to be and then became obviously a commercial success, and yet also so freaking weird. It is such a strange movie. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and there there was something that I, I i saw and of course now I can't find it again, but something to the effect that uh, Toho was tired of taking chances on films that made sense <laughs> and so they, uh and and not making money and so okay yeah, do this thing instead
1: because uh uh obeyashi talks about this he says that when he you know his his screen, script got greenlit, and toyo toho came to him and basically was like well we can't get none of our directors want to do it because what the directors wanted to do were these very like conventional Japanese films of what like fit the expectations of what Japanese cinema was supposed to do. And this obviously doesn't fit that at least at the time it didn't. Um, and so, yeah, so there's this big problem of like they they didn't want to do the film because it's just so out, out there uh, and not in what was the expectation of what a Japanese film director was supposed to be doing. But Toe also didn't want him because the only thing he had going for him was that he did commercials, which was considered a lesser form of filmmaking. And so not the same quality as making a commercially unsuccessful, very serious Japanese film versus, a, you know, a commercial, which would probably be quite, you know, uh, financially successful because it's the whole purpose of a commercial. So, yeah. So, like, they... They they did have this problem of like they they had to deal with the fact that a lot of the other films that they were making were not bringing in the audiences to make the film industry that profitable. Uh, we kind of live in a weird like golden age time, at least in the last like 30 years where, you know, outside of, you know, some studios collapsing and there being some weird fuzzy studio math. um, like, we don't, we're not, we're not, like, at a lot of dearth for uh, the number of movies that we can watch. We have, like, excessive amounts of film that we could watch in any given year being released in multiple different ways and of all different types. But I guess in the 1970s, Japanese cinema didn't have that. Um, it wasn't at the, the, anywhere near the state that it is today, which is... I, I would say that Japanese cinema's quite advanced today. It's got a lot going for it. You can get basically fucking anything out of Japanese cinema these days, um, which is kinda lovely. So yeah, so there's just like a lot of weird history of how this film got made and uh in a weird way some politics, I guess, some film pol- politics.
0: And uh I just I guess I should clarify when you're talking about a, a golden age, you were um like the last thirty years, were you uh I guess where were you referring to as as that being a, a cinematic golden age?
1: I mean, I would say from from a sort of Western perspective, just in terms of the amount of material in so many different varieties that we have access to, versus what I would like, I don't mean Golden Age, like when we think of historical Golden Ages of like the height of film and how it like it rose out of the ashes and became the greatness, like when we say like science fiction Golden Age of like the emergence, I mean, more in terms of just accessibility.
0: Yeah, certainly. Yeah, we can have access to more stuff, uh, of, of various kinds from different periods, uh, and across media than, than ever before. No, that, that's absolutely true. I think we, we have to counterbalance that with at least from from a theatrical perspective, uh, of, uh, the, a much, a comparatively more limited sort of offerings than, than we would have had, say, uh, say 40 years ago.
1: I think to some degree, yes and no. <laughs> I think the problem is, is less the amount of offering and more what's getting pushed. So like, you know, where I live, we're not getting like the really cool indie films. That's just not, we're just never going to see them. We have one theater serving like basically a hundred square miles of of territory. Uh, Like you go, there's no, I don't know of any other, other theater that's less than a two hour drive from here. Uh, Maybe Mm -hmm. there's one in Brainerd. I don't know. And so there, we got one theater. And of course, what are that, that theater needs to make a profit. So what is it going to show? It's going to show all of the films it knows are going to make money and put butts in seats, which are going to be the blockbusters, the stuff that gets lots of advertising. I think a lot of independent film and the, the sort of like what we might call with scare quotes, like serious film is still being made. And there's still lots of that great stuff out there. But it's getting circulated in, in very specific camps.
0: Yeah, well, well, that's what I meant. The you know the terms of accessibility. I mean, in some ways, we can you know we, it's we can we get can get to see these much more easily than we would have, and and yes, the the stuff is out there. But it, the the flip side is is of uh, what you said with you know theatrically much much more difficult.
1: Yeah, like in the actual theater, certainly, certainly much more restricted. I mean, even when I lived in Gainesville, Florida, you know, we, we got some Bollywood films. Uh, but mostly because there was a pretty sizable Indian community, and of course they, they want to watch some films from back home, you know? Um, so you'd get to see some, like, Amir Khan and, and stuff like that. Um, but even then, like, there's still some degree of limit. Like, Gainesville had an independent theater, but, like, they can't show as much. So I think what I would say is part of what makes this the golden age is that in theaters, certainly, we have a much significant limit. And so, like, a a experimental, surrealist film, whatever that would look like today, like House... Uh, we probably would not see that in theaters. You'd have to know to look for it though on like a streaming service because it probably would be available on a streaming service. I mean, this one literally is, but that's just because it's been out long enough. Uh, so I think in a, in a way we have access to it. The biggest problem I think now is kind of the same problem for this film, which is uh, it's just in a different way because of the, the the size of it, which is trying to get people to know that those other things exist and it's not just all Marvel movies. I mean, people know, but, like, you know what I mean, that, like, the yeah. big blockbusters aren't the only films, like, other films aren't just big action spectacles, and there are other types of cinema. At the same time, I also recognize that some people just literally want to go to a movie and just watch a bunch of, like, fantasy heroes punch each other uh, because it's comforting.
0: Well, of course, all of what we're saying is also could be completely moot in that uh, who knows what the state of the industry is going to be. Uh, as, as we move ahead, since right now none of us can see movies in the theaters, yeah. As, as we are speaking, uh, we are seeing new releases going directly to video on demand
1: at a, at a significant upcharge of what you'd pay if you went to the movie theater.
0: Right. Yes. Uh, which, but they we're looking at the possibility of that window that has existed up until now uh, between the theatrical release and some kind of home release disappearing altogether. And who knows what the months ahead are going to bring. So right now we're in a, uh, obviously in a period of gigantic uncertainty on so many fronts. <laughs> Never mind the film industry, but uh, speaking with, with the film industry, we don't know where we're going. Now, admittedly, we've gone, that's taking us well off, uh, house, but I, I thought I would, uh, just mention uh, as a, a bit of a side issue with regards to some of its, Not so much its influences, uh, but what it has subsequently influenced and its tradition. And we we talked about the American slapstick horror films. But I should also mention Takashi Miike's The Happiness of the Katakuris from 2001, Hmm. uh, which uh, is... It's kind of in the same vein as as House. Uh, the uh, Wikipedia entry calls it a musical comedy horror film, which yeah, that that's uh, not entirely inaccurate. I mean, it's got claymation and it's got has monsters, and there's this uh, complete, the the opening scene which involves monsters and soups and, and uvulas has to be seen to be believed. I don't think it's as successful a film as House, but it is certainly a spiritual descendant very clearly of house and Takashi kashimike we certainly have a director whose filmography to call it eclectic would be to vastly understate the case uh so perhaps some some more connections there
1: i wonder too uh you know you're making me think of um the 1998 film bio zombie it's a, a hong kong zombie comedy film which is not mm-hmm. quite as weird as house i mean it it has a, a lot of weirdness and some, I mean, there's some like weird, uh, I think they go to a sushi diner at one point for some reason, because they're basically in a mall and it's meant to be a, a spoof of Dawn of the Dead. Um, the, the For those that don't know, that's the George Romero that has them locked up in the mall. Both versions have that. Um, so it made me think of that when you were kind of talking of, of the kind of, it, I wonder if there's some crossover influence there because- it is a somewhat uh silly film it's very much aware though that it is a comedy maybe there's that aspect that's not quite the same but it's got some of that same kind of weirdness and slapstickery that you kind of get in house just maybe with le- slightly less of that surrealist bent i guess
0: yeah and, and not having seen that one i'll uh i'll i'll take your word uh on that but i i i, and I wonder if one of the things that uh we don't we're not seeing as clearly in some of the other films is the, is the, there is some thematic heft to house as well, right? That everything that's going on is also, uh, I mean, it's, it, it's a kind of twisted coming of age story. Uh, the, the, the film is suffused with these are the, the burgeoning sexuality and the anxieties surrounding that and parental and child resentments and, the forging of one's own identity and the idea of, being, of one's identity being consumed, where we're getting the, the literalization of the body in pieces fantasy. I mean, there's a lot that is going into the the rather heavy mix uh, of this uh, this this film's meal.
1: Yeah, I mean, you were making me think a lot about the – I mean, there are a lot of different thematics here. So one of them is uh, Obayashi explicitly included World War II – Discussions here, uh, yes. because uh, he, many of the people he knows, suffered from the bombing in Hiroshima, as I
0: recall. Yeah, I gather he, all of his fr- all of his childhood friends were killed.
1: Yeah, so it clearly had a very significant impact, and so there are elements of this because, as you mentioned much earlier when we were recording, um, the aunt, uh, you know, stayed behind in that house in part because the man that she loved went off the war and obviously never came back, and so there's this this very clear awareness of. Of The the damage and consequences of the war and obviously things like Hiroshima, etc. on Japanese culture. But then you also have this other element, which is, you know, you have all these problems of like dead people and families in here. And so the other one is with Gorgeous Mm -hmm. and her father because um, uh, Ryoko is this woman who shows up and is the gonna essentially be her new mother is the way the father frames it uh because she's getting married right and she would in u.s culture i guess we would say stepmom but i don't know if that's a thing in japan but it very clearly makes it clear right to us that uh she is meant to be the replacement like she's going to be your new mom and the immediate reaction is exactly what you'd expect from a teenager having somebody come in that they don't really know who is replacing someone they love very much who has died uh, which is she gets upset about it and and decides I'm going to go stay with my aunt uh, in the house. But Ryoko shows up at the end as well. So it's actually in a way kind of like the frame of the entire film, because when Ryoko shows up thinking that what she's going to do is suit things over and like w- earn the affections of her, her stepdaughter, uh, she meets Gorgeous, but Gorgeous effectively burns her all away while also giving us probably the most creepy set of lines in the entire film, which is her talking about how all her friends are asleep, but they're all going to wake up and they're going to be very, very hungry, (laughs) which is super creepy. Uh, And I love that line. That line is one of my favorites, but yeah, she burns away Ryoko at the end. And so rather than having a reunification of, I guess what you might say is the nuclear family, uh, that family is permanently destroyed.
0: Well, of course that's that, that's something that looks like gorgeous, but is more probably the ant or the, the whatever the the figure was right because we in fact gorgeous meets her demise uh, about half two thirds of the way through the film, When she's sitting in front of the mirror and is consumed by flame, yeah, so that that's the ant that we're seeing at the end, though she now seems to have permanently adopted the uh the the appearance of gorgeous,
1: oh it was not clear to me that it was the ant i was I was under the impression that some of the people who are consumed become part part of the house like permanently they become the souls that are consuming the other people that come in
0: well yeah actually that, that's that's a that's a good point i shouldn't say i mean I'm, i i shouldn't be uh <laughs> too uh, definitive about that being the ant because uh i'm now applying a kind of narrative certainty that isn't really there in, in the film. Yeah. Uh, so the, so we, we have a thing that, that might be the spirit of gorgeous. It might be the ant that looks like gorgeous, might be the embodiment of the force within the house. Uh, you know, who knows the, the, the fact that the, that some of the, the victims seem to be quite cheery about the way that they meet their ends and their personalities are still retained suggests a, A complexity to the situation that can't be reduced to, oh, it's the ant who consumed them all in order to become young. That's, that side of things is there, but that simplifies the film in a reductive way. Uh, there's, it it is, it is a film that defies a neat and tidy explanation or resolution.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's very true because if, For those who eventually are going to watch this, I think it's going to become very clear that your expectations of what kind of film you're getting at any given point is going to be probably subverted. Uh, because so much of this film, at times it gives you very clear responses to things of, of like, oh, but that's exactly what you would think it is. And that's that. And at other times it just deliberately obfuscates what is really going on. I mean, the, the example I think is I... Uh, when they're all in the the water, right, and they're they're sort of floating, and they realize they just, are well, they eventually they're floating, but they're supposed to destroy the cat thing, the picture of the cat, because this cat keeps showing up throughout the story, right? This beautiful white fluffy cat uh, keeps showing up and showing up, and then there's this this portrait of the cat that's sort of a creepy portrait that's on the wall, and so they decide, well, we just need to destroy it, and that'll take care of it, because it'll like you know in in a traditional film, right, we might expect that that would be the thing that ends this, and then the remaining members survive, and then they, you know, they're traumatized and they go on about their lives. Um, Because a lot of horror films have that, right, where you just need to figure out the thing that ends it, Uh, there's a mini-mystery, figure out the thing that destroys the big bad, and then they just, you know, they have to be sad about the fact that their friends are dead. But in this film, that's not what happens. Because when they destroy it, there's blood and there's screams and all of that, but the house still consumes them. That doesn't help them get away.
0: And that Scene of the the blood spewing out of the cat's mouth and leading to the flood certainly anticipates the geyser of blood coming out of the wall in Evil Dead Two a decade later. But uh, and the, the also the the lack of destruction of the big bad though that also very squarely places a, a house in the seventies uh because certainly from particularly 1968 onwards the horror film where the big bad is not destroyed where in fact the big bad is triumphant becomes very very common
1: and you would know that cuz you're the horror dork on this show
0: <laughs> well and to, to come back to uh burnt offerings from the year before there the the house is completely triumphant and uh, it it devours its victims and that's that
1: it's really strange because, you know, I, I have obviously, I mean, I was thinking like Hereditary would be an example where the yeah. the big bad effectively wins. A very different film than this, obviously. And there are obviously films that, that love to do that. And and maybe there's something about, you know, a, a lot of them are horror films. and Maybe there's something about the fact that horror films can do that, that makes them so attractive for some people. Because mo- for the most part, right, if you think about any other film genre, usually the bad guy loses, Right, they might win in some specific ways, right? Like they might kill some characters or something like that. But generally, the bad guy loses. The bad guy doesn't win. I mean, like James Bond's like the weird exception because the bad guy loses and he gets away, but eventually he gets caught and he's dead. Uh, and that's sort of what in most forms of a film that's ha- what happens with the bad the bad thing or the bad person. It's weird that in some horror films it's the opposite way. Uh, and maybe there's some aspect of like the 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 terror of realizing that you can lose in these these situations, and maybe that's part of what's going on.
0: Well, certainly the 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 evil could not win, uh, at least in let's say the the Hollywood film because of the production code running up through in, in, into the into, into the '60s. But though you uh, you had uh, well as we saw with uh, Val Lewton's The Seventh Victim. Uh, with the, the suicide at the end of that. That's one of the big, the, the big exception, uh, to that, that rule. Mario Bava's Black Sunday in 1963, it's an anthology horror film and one of its stories, uh, the, the Vertilac with, with Boris Karloff ends with Evil Triumphant. So we have that precursor, uh, coming out of Italy in 63. But then in 1968, we have Night of the Living Dead and Rosemary's Baby. Uh, where, you know, our hero is shot dead at the end of one and the Antichrist is embraced by his mother, uh, at the end of the other. And, and from then on, you have, well, and there's also the Fearless Vampire Killers, which again, uh, horror comedy just, um, uh, so another Polanski film just prior to this where, where evil wins. But certainly from 68 onwards through the 70s, lots and lots and lots of horror films were evil, uh, evil triumphs. But, Lots and lots of films in general where that happens, particularly in thrillers, right? This is the, after all, the era of. You know of the conversation and of Chinatown and uh, the 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 bleak bleak ending, right? And you have a lot of darkness coming out of American cinema in the late '60s through the uh, the, the mid '70s in the period of the American film renaissance, reflecting the anxieties and traumas of the uh, of, of of a nation coming through the double whammy of Vietnam and Watergate among other things. So there the the idea that good is triumphant is uh is, is a bit of an open question in so many or uh, so, so many films of the 70s and and horror is very much part of that. So you know, Star Wars in 1977 in some ways is almost seemed, is is like the, uh, the a course correction of that kind. But you watch a thriller uh, from any any time uh, in the 70s and you can flip a coin as to whether or not you're going to get a happy ending. And now we we get sort of spikes up and down. Now, in the last several years, we've seen uh, something of that darkness. I think come back uh, in into films, and I'm I, I'm running the risk of oversimplifying things way too much here. But I you do see certain trends in 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 that regard, and so films like Hereditary and Midsummer and The Witch, horror films where the darkness unequivocally triumphs seem to be more common again even though though we certainly have plenty of counter examples as well but the uh, i don't know that we're seeing that to the same degree in in say like again the the crime or the thriller film which uh so often went went dark you know black hole dark uh, in in the 70s
1: <laughs> well i mean, yeah you're right cuz i was thinking um bad lieutenant for example <laughs> Well, I guess that's a little different because he's kind of bad from the start. So
0: yeah, and that's okay. So now we're we're that's the '90s there though, and and the thing is that's but, also yeah. a film that's all about all that's that's obsessed with the idea of redemption. Though where does Abel Ferrara get his start? Driller Killer in the '70s. Yeah,
1: you're right. I and hate Ms. that 45. Movie. I hate that movie so much. <laughs> oh, I found it unwatchable.
0: It's uh, it's it's an acquired taste. <laughs>
1: well, it's an acquired taste if if your acquired taste is battery acid. <laughs> But no, I, I'm just, I'm just throwing out a bunch of stuff because I, I'm trying to think yeah. of examples of exactly what you're saying. But maybe we are in a new, or at least has seeing an emerging trend where that's happening more in films now. But I don't know that this film is, uh, I just, that's something that for me was a, an immediate reaction was the way that this film ends and none of the people that we're supposed to be rooting for, uh, or theoretically rooting for, uh, survive. They're all dead.
0: No, and yet the film re- remains resolutely cheerful about that too.
1: Yeah, because that's the thing.
0: It's it's <laughs> it's not the conversation. It's fun. <laughs> uh, it's it's that's well. part of
1: the the creepiness of this is that it is weirdly cheerful about its ending. I mean, even the the teacher who gets turned into bananas. That is just it's so <laughs> it's so but it's just it is bananas. It's ridiculous.
0: Yeah. It's completely random.
1: And, like, he screams at one point, like, I'm turning into bananas or something like that. And then he turns into bananas. It's like, okay, it's just, uh, he's dead, but he's now going to be eaten? Like, what's happening, yeah. David? And the
0: soundtrack is just is just perfect for all of this, too.
1: Yeah, because at times it is, like, syrupy sweet.
0: Yeah. 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 Uh, and and knowingly so.
1: Very much so. Yeah, on purpose. But, well, in any case, we've kind of hit hit an hour point here. I think we need to... I think so. We need to switch over to talking about what I am picking for us to watch next.
0: What have you picked for us next, Sean?
1: I have picked what I would consider to be a veritable classic that has been snubbed by the Academy for too damn long. And that is a film that will take us across the East China Sea from where we are right now with House to 1985, some... Eight, roughly eight ish years later, to a film starring none other than the greatest kung fu master, com- comedy kung fu master, probably ever, Jackie Chan, uh, to a film called Police Story. Oh, excellent. Which is the film that essentially broke Jackie Chan outside of the Chinese market into international waters. It was the film that made him. Eventually would make him into the star that he is today, which is, as a reminder to everybody, Jackie Chan is, as of this recording, 66 years old and yet can still do a backflip and throw himself between the steps of a ladder. Impressive. I I don't even know what to do. I I can barely hobble. But Jackie Chan is like throwing himself up buildings and he's in his 60s. So, yeah, so we're going to watch Police Story, uh, also known as Police Force sometimes, um, and I'm really looking forward to this film because I think it would be nice to get something uh, that is not from the West that is also very fun and exciting. And Jackie Chan films are all of those things.
0: All right. Look forward to it.
1: Perfect. Perfect. Well, if folks want to let us know what they think about house or house, It is it's sometimes referred to, uh, you can obviously send us emails, skiffyandfanty at gmail.com. You can go to their Twitter account, at Um You can find me at at Sean Duke. And where can they find you, David?
0: You can find me on Twitter at at David underscore Annandale. And then your website? davidanandale.com. Perfect.
1: And uh, yeah, if you folks want to support us, they can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty and all that. Uh, Other than that, that's kind of all we got. So we're pretentious stout. Bye! Bye! If you would like to support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty. You can also find us on our website, skiffyandfanty.com, and on Twitter at skiffyandfanty. If you'd like to send us an email, you can do so at skiffyandfanty at gmail.com. The music for this episode comes from Sphere by Creo. You can find out more about their music at freemusicarchive.org.